Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Kirsten. I'm Adam. We're here today with Julian von Bargen, who is a data scientist and a PhD candidate at York University. And today we're going to be talking to Julian about WikiLeaks, cybersecurity, data activism, and information technology. So, hi, and welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We were hoping you could uh, we could start the conversation off by talking a little bit about uh, the saga of WikiLeaks. And, and what I mean by that is the overlap between Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, public interest leaking, hacktivism, and information freedom. So if we could talk a little bit about, there's a lot of uh, news swirling around right now that Assange has been prison. He's recently been arrested. If you could tell us maybe a little bit about that process. Yeah, of course. So um, Julian Assange, I guess about a month ago now, had been uh, living in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And about a month ago, the Ecuadorian government decided they were no longer going to provide him the sort of cover of diplomatic immunity. And so this was sort of what led to the sort of his arrest. And now he's currently in prison in the UK. And there's questions now, well, will he be extradited to the US to face charges there? And we know that there's um, an indictment for him waiting. Uh, And we also know that there's charges potentially facing him in Sweden. So there's also questions about whether or not he'll go there as well. And uh, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about because, you know, as you mentioned in your question, there's sort of a lot of things here. We're talking about public interest leaking, hacktivism, and Julian is an interesting person because, you know, he sort of captures a lot of the complexities of what goes on um, with sort of hacktivism and information freedom. Uh, The sort of positives and the negatives are all kind of like caught up in this kind of drawn out saga of this individual. Julian, as someone who has not seen uh, the film uh, on Julian Assange, where he is depicted by Benedict Cumberbatch, I'm a little in the dark, personally, about um, Julian Assange and his history. So can you tell, you know, tell us a little bit more about who he is as a person, um, what his story is? Sure. Um, so uh, he was born in Australia, and I think he had, um, you know, I think a, pretty, a bit of a transient uh, upbringing. I, I don't think his dad was really in the picture. I think his mom may have been in and out of a cult. I don't, sometimes I don't know if I'm just kind of repeating things that I read that might not be true, but this is what I've heard. Um, regardless, I think he was a kind of, he's obviously a really smart, kind of precocious kid. He got into computers really early. And I think even before he was 18, he was in trouble with Australian feds about, I think he'd gotten into a, like a Pentagon website or something like that. And so he was this kind of young, precocious hacker kid from the 90s, growing up in Australia. And then he becomes a bit transient. He sort of lives abroad. I, you know, I don't, he, I think he's quite unlikable as a person by the sounds of it, difficult to live with, you know, thinks very highly of himself tends to treat other people very instrumentally. You know, I read uh, the biography or the, more or less the biography of the other founder, this Daniel Domschitberg, 
and he does not have very nice things to say <laughs> about living with Assange and how difficult it could be to live with them. And one anecdote that always sticks with me is, you know, Daniel would talk about kind of like coming home. He'd been at work all day, and then he'd come home and work on WikiLeaks at night with Assange. And meanwhile, Assange would be living on his couch, not really doing anything. And Daniel would make dinner. And he'd make, you know, 10 chicken wings and he'd bring them down to the table. And Assange would like immediately take like eight of them and like eat them all and just like not care, supposedly, that Daniel had no food or something. You know, like he was one of those people who just didn't really seem to have much conscientiousness about other people around him. And so I think this has made him, you know, he's brilliant, but he's also been this kind of cantankerous kind of asshole uh, at the very least, if not, um, if not worse to the way he treats people around him. But um, so he's known as Mendex, this kind of famous hacker as like a 16 or 17 year old. And he's kind of been riding on that. He got involved with um, the Chaos Computing Club in Germany and started to sort of run in a bunch of these kind of hacker circles from a, from a young age until now. So what exactly, you know, kind of was Assange uh, arrested for? What was he not arrested for? And how is this connected to um, Chelsea Manning? Um, Julian Assange was arrested in the UK for, I, I guess, essentially uh, failing to show up for a court appearance in which he was supposed to face extradition to Sweden. And instead of showing up for that, he sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy. And his claim for why he was doing that was because he was worried that, in fact, the allegations of rape that were made against him in Sweden were cover for him to be extradited to the U.S., and we know now from the indictment that he was, they wanted to extradite him to the U.S. because of the role they thought he played in helping to facilitate uh, Chelsea Manning, actually, and her, the access she ultimately got to um, the U.S. military documents. So Assange and WikiLeaks became famous for, in large part, for the documents they released about the Iraq War, about the Afghan War. Uh, about Cablegate, and famously they gave us this movie or this this uh, video, Collateral Murder, and all of that was based on documents that Chelsea Manning took while she was working in the intelligence or doing intelligence for the military. I'm glad you used the term uh, facilitate there because it makes me uh, wonder if you could provide a bit more of an insight into the relationship there between Manning and uh, Assange. Yeah, that's perfect because that's key for understanding actually what the arrest was. So, you know, um, Assange is kind of accused, I think, of doing two things. One of them is to sort of continue to encourage Chelsea to keep looking for documents that they thought would be interesting uh, and interesting to the public to help under the public understand uh, ongoing American wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but also because it's alleged that he actually offered kind of technical expertise. That, and I think the spe specificity is that he was allegedly trying to help Chelsea figure out a password that would have given her even greater access to uh, U.S. government computers and further sort of uh, documentation of these wars. So that was the specificity of the charge against him was that he had abet abetted this in some way. But it's, you know, it's also sort of more or less known that in a different court filing, the FBI more or less admitted that they didn't think that he had actually played a role in doing any of this, and they couldn't prove it. So in fact, we think it was, or it's alleged that it was Assange, but in fact, it was an anonymous, someone using anonymous software was chatting with Chelsea about this. And they also know for a fact that whoever this Chelsea was chatting with, that person never actually tried 
to um, use the hash or try to figure out this hash to get this password to get access. So we actually know even these charges here, there's not really any meat to them. But there might be something to what happened in Sweden. Um, and it would be interesting to sort of just hear out that trial if he were to ever face those charges honestly in Sweden and see what actually happened with these allegations around the rape. Uh, we have less evidence about that this was a setup, but it seems clear that there was a setup involved with with his arrest and indictments in the U.S. In watching the mainstream media response to the Assange arrest, I've been like fairly disturbed by basically the the way that the media has demonstrated that it is and kind of intrinsically tied up with you know elements of the ruling class and their interests and not really wanting to push too far out of line. Yeah, I mean, it's part of why, as much as there's so many things about June Assange that I don't like, that I've been so disappointed to see so little interest in defending his right as, even if in some ways he didn't exactly want to be a journalist, that he had a right to publish these things. Mm -hmm. And that these are basic press freedoms that we sh you would hope people would be rallying behind. And it's sort of as alarming to see how quickly people have abandoned his right to publish. And... Um, I think it's getting worse everywhere in North America. And I'm really worried in Canada right now about, you know, you hear what they're talking about in Alberta, for instance, where they want to build this war room and they want to start suing environmentalists who write things that they don't like about the extractivist industries there. In terms of thinking about, uh, you know, this idea of, of are all leaks created equal? What are the ethics of leaking? And maybe if, Julian, you could give us a little bit of an introduction on what you would define public interest leaking as. Well, public interest leaking and public interest hacking, two slightly different things. Public interest hacking are, you know, people with political agendas that are ultimately trying to dig into somebody else's computer to find information that, you know, either discredits or undermines their opponents or sort of amplifies their own position. And then leaking, we sort of distinguish from whistleblowing or something in that we're making public things that may or may not have been secret or maybe confirming things we suspected but didn't know for sure. But we're not whistleblowing. You know, Edward Snowden is maybe a whistleblower in that he he sort of uncloaked, became de-anonymized and became a public figure. But often uh, what makes a leaker different than a whistleblower is that they never sort of de-anonymized. They remain anonymous. They might stay in their positions. They might continue to leak. Um, and, you know, by leaking, we mean sort of make public documents, secrets, uh, make, you know, essentially disclose the truth that might have been hidden behind corrupt or secret powerful organizations. And so, you know, it seems like at face value and maybe you know, in the early days of WikiLeaks, we thought, oh, this is great. You know, let's make everything transparent. You know, let's let just let all the information out there. And this is a criticism we hear of this kind of cyber libertarian ideology uh, is that, well, do we actually want complete openness? And it's actually something of a contradiction that on the one hand, these people will want openness. And on the other hand, you know, we know libertarians like private property, they like privacy, and they think they should also have a sort of interior personal life that the state can't intervene into, that shouldn't be sort of publicized and and sort of shared so that for all to see so for them it's a bit of a contradiction 
uh, for us, I think we can sort of wonder, well, then what are the limits to making things open? When do we not want to make everything transparent? When should we, what secrets are worth revealing to the public? And, you know, whose decision is that? I, I, I'm not sure I have the answer for that. But I, I don't think we can just kind of blindly endorse everything must be open, everything must be transparent. Um, but that said, I don't think we can fully function as a democracy if we don't have a clear idea about what is going on behind the closed doors of political parties, of state organizations, and so on. What I would maybe want to put as a question to you, Julian, is how have leaks been used in the past to further leftist agendas and how might they uh, do so in the future? And then maybe from that we can garner out some of the reasons or instances why leaking can be productive. We had heard from the sort of usual U.S. media outlets about why uh, an invasion of Iraq was such an important thing to, be, to undertake or why an invasion of Afghanistan by the U.S. was a sort of noble and kind of just democratic purpose. And when it turns out there's documents that reveal, well, maybe these this army didn't behave in a way that sort of accords with those values, or it turns out there was ulterior motives for those invasions. I mean, I think all of those are perfect instances of where the disclosures make a huge difference in sort of helping us to reevaluate, you know, if, we're, if as sort of democratic citizens, the expectation is that we can assess the people we vote into power based on the things that they do, and they're telling us one thing and doing a different thing, then that's a, that's a valuable public service, regardless of whether you agree with the politician or not. Um, so in those cases, I think it's kind of obvious. The, the gray area is a little bit tricky, though. I mean, how much pers of a personal life do we need to know? Um, like, should we, you know, there's this bill passing in Alabama around abortion right now. Like, is, should it be public knowledge? Should we, if hackers hacked the politicians supporting that, you know, is it public knowledge? Should it be public knowledge if they asked mistresses to have abortions? You know, or is that something that we should consider to be private and not worthy of public scrutiny? And even that one, I think I know the answer, but we could probably make it a little bit more difficult, you know. Um, like, but where do we draw that line? Actually, I think that kind of also poses an interesting juxtaposition about leaking insofar as what constitutes legitimate and illegitimate sources of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, in the case of the collateral murder video um, and, and, you know, the footage of American troops potentially committing war crimes, um, we knew this was happening because the victims and the people on the ground told us it was, right? I mean, but it wasn't really, it had to be seen through this military optical lens in order to be considered legitimate source, legitimate information, right? And so we sort of see how technology in the form of a visual specter here or in, in the case of leaked you know, documents and text, we sort of see that technology is replacing this human subjective experience as, as a source of information. Well, and so those things, you know, we have, um, we create more data than we ever have before. I think in the last five years, we've probably created more data than there existed was before in that. the history <laughs> of humans before that. And based on that data, we're starting to make more and more inferences about what that means about the character and the behaviors and the real life patterns in people's lives. And we've, we just assume society is generally getting more just over time. And in fact, we know that we can see 
return to all kinds of regressive laws. And so, like, what happens if, you know, we start to pass stronger anti-abortion laws that look to criminalize abortions that have happened in the past and might be able to look at whatever, people's social media histories, people's purchasing histories, people's whatever, to figure out that, in fact, they did these things in the past and now we're going to punish them in the future. Like, those are things to be really worried about. And, again, I want you always want to be careful not to legitimate some of the myths that tech like you know that tech entrepreneurs and companies like to create about themselves and about what the power of AI can be but that there are insights being gleaned about people's lives and algorithms are getting to know people and their patterns well i think that's kind of connected to questions of like you know is information neutral right what power does it hold and mentioning the kind of relevance of aspects of someone's personal life reminds me of certain discussions that I've heard and participated in wherein people pose the question, well, if I don't have something to hide or if if you don't have something to hide from the government, then what's the problem with the government collecting this information? Why should this, why should this bother me? Uh, you know, what, what kind of responses might you offer some, someone who offered that critique? Well, I mean, you know, at a, glib a glib response is like <laughs> what kind of life are you living if there's nothing that you would ever want to hide <laughs> uh you know you gotta maybe think about that but i mean more seriously um you know a sort of famous story about if you've got nothing to hide there was this story of this teenager who i think she went to target in the u.s and she bought this series of products that Target's algorithm identified as, you know, they interpret as this woman is pregnant. It just happened that she was a child, or not a child, but a teenager, and she hadn't disclosed this pregnancy to her, her father or her mother. And then Target kind of started sending her, oh, you're having a baby advertisements to try to get her to buy all these products that sort of come with pregnancy, and revealed ultimately accidentally to these parents that and sort of made a decision to tell the parents when you know the the pregnant woman had not decided that this was something that she wanted to do and in that case like it's not hiding in that it's some sort of immoral act or it's not hiding in it's criminal but sometimes you just have things that you want to keep private and you know I, we it's have hard to, to do when the algorithms know you better than you know yourself well i i think the other thing you worry about is sort of you know ai is a promotional term it's not an accurate <laughs> interpretation of what's going on but yeah the uh, you know we don't want to leave it up to an algorithm responsible for sending advertisements to make a decision about when you're going to tell your parents that you might or might not be pregnant. And, you know, that could have even more consequences depending on the law, uh, sort of that, govern. you know, if you're younger or if you're considering not keeping the baby and so on, you know, that sort of disclosure can have serious implications. So, even if you, if you have something to hide and it's not criminal and it's not moral, you might just want to hide it because that's your right to decide when you want to tell people. Or, I mean, I've heard Glenn Greenwald respond to this by talking about, you know, the fact that he's gay and the fact that, it, again, to be gay is not immoral and it's not a crime, although actually it is in some places. And so it, it might be the sort of thing that you do want to hide because authorities might punish you for it. And if there's a way that you can reveal that, 
you risk endangering people um, who have something to hide, but not because they've done anything wrong, but because they live in societies that aren't fair. And so I think those are good reasons why there are things to hide. And, you know, they don't necessarily have anything to do with doing anything wrong. I wanted to ask this question of leaks and maybe distrust, right? So we see these leaks coming out, making explicit what is kind of already known. They challenge public trust in media institutions, government institutions, military institutions. Uh, can you talk a bit about maybe why you think that could be a good thing and a bad thing and, and uh, a bit of a, an explanation as to that kind of tension? Yeah. Uh, so you always want to be careful not to put too much emphasis on a single actor. But, you know, we talk about living in a time in a sort of breakdown in public trust and in legitimacy crisis and the sort of public institutions that we kind of rely on to help us decide who we are and where we're going and so on as a society, you know. Um, and I, I think that leaking has undermined a lot of those institutions. And Well, should we say that it undermined it or it's exposed... Exactly, exactly. And so what that's done is, or, or it's definitely added to the fact that it seems like we're having more and more trouble, never mind sort of like agreeing on interpretation, but now we're having more and more trouble even sort of just agreeing on what the facts are. And the more we can't agree on what the facts are, the more it seems like these institutions are picking sides, that they've been politicized, that they can't be trusted. And again, I think we have theories of the state that help us to understand why that might be true. But what concerns me is that the distrust for these sort of institutions has put people on the left uh, in the sort of just the terrible position of both defending this edifice that we know to be a flimsy edifice and also often in service of a kind of capitalist society um, but having us defend them, because if we don't have even these basic civil rights, what do we have? And meanwhile, it's allowed uh, the right wing to sort of position itself as kind of countercultural and sort of, you know, rev not revolutionary, but counter-revolutionary of having a sort of alternate vision for society. And uh, yeah, I think WikiLeaks played a role in that. And I think it'll be a tough question to figure out, well, how as people on the left... Do we maybe use leaking and so on, but try to do it in a way that that connects to a, an alternate sort of left vision for how we might rebuild these institutions that are crumbling? Or I don't want to be too dramatic, but, you know, are certainly undergoing serious criticism. Yeah, I mean, the point stands. How yeah. do you sort of take advantage of this, these fragmentations and distrust in a way that's effective? And the right has demonstrated it is quite good at, at doing that. And so I, one of the organizations I'd like to point out is they're called uh, Unicorn Riot Media. People heard of Unicorn Riot? Um, mm -hmm. I know one of the people who works there, a guy named Freddie Martinez, who's done a lot of really interesting counter-surveillance work. And they took this kind of, you know, this kind of hacker, kind of public interest hacking ethos. And they infiltrated all kinds of far-right discord groups and sort of secret um, kind of meeting groups on a variety of platforms. And they just, they worked their way into those organizations. They captured tons of documents and discussions that these groups were having. And then they turned around and they leaked them 
and reported on them to sort of help give context to stuff that happened in Charlottesville, among other places, to say. Uh, you know, so they sort of combined the scientific journalism of WikiLeaks with a kind of more anarchist indie media ethos to sort of suggest a different way that media can be done, to try to demonstrate what we sometimes people disagree about, but like it's more and more kind of clear that we don't always have the documents, but there's clearly a huge upsurge in sort of white supremacy and far-right political organizing. And here they were in these Discord uh, chat groups with the documentation to show, if you don't actually think this is happening, let me show you how serious this really is. And then they connect that with, so what do we do about it and why do we think this is happening? And I think that's like a positive application of this sort of scientific journalism model um, that's kind of connected to a vision for a way the world, you know, a left vision of the world that's promising. I think it could be really promising. And I don't think they're the only ones who are doing something like that. We were talking earlier about the Assange-Manning relationship and how Assange is essentially being taken to task for, like, maybe, maybe not uh, prompting Manning to do things that were not okay, mm -hmm. right? And if we look at the Mueller report, we see that actually someone like Trump, even though he asked his associates to do something, they weren't able to pull it off. And so they're like, we actually can't bring evidence down on him because even if he came at something with a bad intent and asked people to do this thing that was maybe not legal, they didn't do it. So yeah. therefore, he's not complicit, yet Assange is complicit. So it kind of speaks again to the way that the terrain is very much like prefigured to uh, yeah, well, suit certain interests. And I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about, you know, we've been talking about leaking in the public interest, which is actually a very tiny percentage of the leaking that goes on in the world. And most leaking is done by people in the state who want to leak things to the media for all kinds of different purposes. You know, one of the most famous examples was Dick Cheney leaking the names of those CIA operatives who were in the field at the time undercover because they disagreed. I can't even remember what the disagreement was about, but he publicly shamed them for that. He destroyed their cover. He, you know, um, publicized them and faced no consequences. And I was recently listening to Intercepted with Jeremy Scahill, and he told the story about how he'd been working on this story for better part of a year, and they were two or three days from publishing it. And similar documents on the same topic were leaked to friendly journalists. So the day before Intercepted went to publish, the same story was published by sort of state-friendly sort of press. So like we see leaking all the time. And the vast majority of leaking is unpunished, and it's done by people who were in power, will remain in power, and we're giving little tidbits of information to friendly media, friendly journalists, to sort of, you know, generate positive stories about the things that they're trying to do. And so, yeah, we're on this very unequal terrain all the time. And so that's something that is it's why we ultimately... And it's why there's an ethics to leaking. There's an ethics to leaking and why also we have to be sort of steadfast in our commitment to the right to, for some people to publish. You know, like we have to demand that they're responsible. They can't just leak anything. And of course, there are consequences to saying things and you can't dodge them. Um, but we still have to sort of assert the right of people to, to dissent and to criticize. And... Assange did that very effectively, and there's a whole bunch more of these data activists. You know, we haven't really talked about Barrett Brown or John Young, um, Heather Marsh, uh, and there's many more. Jeremy Hammond, you know, people who took great risks to make information public. And now they're rotting in various prisons. Rotting yeah. in prisons, and it's not surprising. 
can you explain a little bit more about who Heather Marsh is? Yeah, Heather Marsh is a really interesting character, although I, I wish I knew more about her. I'm trying to learn more about her, but she's a Canadian um, tech developer and freelance journalist. And if you've ever encountered her stuff, you've probably encountered her reporting on the Omar Catter story. And she's written some really um, amazing stuff about that. She kind of exposed the sort of Kafkaesque trial that was Omar Catter's, uh, you know, his trial in the U.S. And, the you know, you know I don't like almost anything about Justin Trudeau. The one courageous <laughs> thing I would say that he did was he made a big payout when the government clearly did not, you know, made no attempt to stand up for basic Canadian civil rights. And she was one of the people who exposed a whole bunch of that stuff. She, but her history is long. She was actually one of the original editors at WikiLeaks. So from 2006 wow. or seven till I think 2009, she ran the main kind of WikiLeaks news webpage. And she's also written a bunch of interesting books. Uh, well, one interesting book and one, I think, coming shortly that are trying to sort of deal with, um, one, how do we build sort of data commons so that we can open up data, as much data as possible, to as many people as possible, but also how you balance the sort of democratization of data with the importance of expertise, um, you know, which is something you know, left organizers have to think about sometimes too. You know, we on the one hand, we have... We want to organize and we want to build sort of left movements. And, and we think that often expertise is sort of a liberal thing that tells left movements what they can and can't do and what the sort of limits of something are. And at other times, we need to have expertise to make sense of problems like all the sort of intricacies of, of climate change. It's one thing to say, oh, we need a left movement that says, hey, you know, we got to be eco-socialist. <laughs> and it's another to say, okay, but... What do we know exactly about what's going on, what's happening to the earth? You know, where can we intervene to have the maximum impact to stop those sorts of things? So, but, so Heather Marsh, one of her big things is trying to figure out how sort of horizontal movements mix with expertise and how they can work with data commons to sort of come up with democratic but also expert sort of solutions to a kind of wide variety of problems. So she's pretty interesting. Um, and I'm actually, I'm trying to interview her, but uh, she is not responding to my email. So on the off chance she listens to Oats for Breakfast. <laughs> Call her <laughs> she at should him, Heather. Yeah, get, 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 get at me. I'd love to talk to you, Heather. Okay, well, that was a fantastic discussion. Thanks so much um, for coming in here today, Julian. Hopefully this will be the first of more interviews to follow. So, yeah, Julian, thanks thanks for coming in today and for being so serious about this. Well, and Adam and Kirsten, thank you for just listening to me talk a lot. <laughs> I hope to be able to return the favor, listen to you talk a lot. You know, name the time. Well, actually, Adam, I hear you talk all the time. So Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> that can be like the B-side, you know, like, oh, C-side. stick around after for a little couple jokes with our friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at socialistproject.ca. Remember that you can support the podcast and the work of the Socialist Project by going to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast and becoming a patron. In the extended discussion, we'll be commenting um, a little bit more about some of the implications what we've discussed today has for journalism. Um, So we encourage you to tune in for the next section of the interview. 
The next segment of this interview will be published in about a week's time. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Can you get a plug-in for my LinkedIn? <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn.com slash Julian Von Bargen. Uh.